Bible, hard, hard digital copy, or hard copy or digital copy, get it out. Luke chapter 11. Um, we're trying to do a few things in the service today. Or Luke chapter 12, I'm sorry. We're trying to kind of do a few things. So the opening gambit this morning is turn to Luke chapter 12. That's it. Um, it's helpful at various times to kind of step back and say, hey, where are we in the Gospel of Luke? This is a long series, it's a long book. Summer has meant that people are kind of in and out with us. Um, you could just be joining us for the first time. So this will go by way of either recap, it might go by way of refresher, it might be setting some context so you know where, where we are in Luke chapter 12. Here's kind of the big 30,000 foot view. We've taken the Gospel of Luke, we've put it into four sort of distinct sections by how Luke moves the narrative. So the first section there, represented by the manger and the star, is Jesus's birth and sort of presentation. Here is the Savior. That's Luke 1.1 1, 1 through Luke 4.15. Then in Luke 4.16 through the end of, close to the end of chapter 9 is like his early ministry. That's that little boat on the Sea of Galilee there. Jesus's early ministry takes place in the region of Galilee. It's up north. And Everything that happens in his early ministry is indicative of what the entirety of his ministry is going to be like. It ultimately identifies who is this Savior Jesus. What is he here for? What is he capable of? What does it look like for him to engage with the world? And then in Luke 9, verse 51, Luke tells us that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. That's the third little picture, the road that leads to the temple there in Jerusalem. That's where we currently are. We're in the middle of that section that goes from Luke 9, 51, all the way through the middle of chapter 19. And that travel narrative, which is what scholars call it, is Jesus moving from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem, down south, where he's ultimately going to be crucified, die, be buried, resurrect. And so he's making the trip from north to south, and it's like this preparation time, preparation for Jesus and his, his crucifixion, but also preparation for the disciples, and what does it really mean to follow Jesus? And then in the middle of chapter 19 through the end of the book, there is the tomb with the stone rolled away. That's the passion narrative where Jesus is arrested, tried, convicted, falsely crucified, buried, raised. Then he's with his disciples for a little while before he ultimately ascends at the start of the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke. So there's the big structure. We're in that travel narrative. And so over the last few weeks, what we've seen is that Luke tells us Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And then Jesus immediately tells his followers, this is what it means to be one of my disciples. And it's not all sunshine and roses. It is denying yourself. It's taking up your cross and following me. There's a cost to being my disciple. After that, he sends those disciples out to do ministry. He delegates authority and power to them to do ministry similar to what he has been doing. Then they come back. There's some reporting. There's some conversation about it. And right on the heels of that, Jesus gives two incredible gospel pictures. The first one happens in a conversation with a teacher of the law who wants to justify himself. And Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan in which he says, you cannot justify yourself. Try as hard as you might. You cannot, will not ever be able to stand before the Lord and provide your own justification. You need someone to do that for you. And then he goes into the home of Mary and Martha and he gives us this beautiful picture of what it looks like to rest in the presence of Jesus. Right after that, he teaches his disciples how to pray, that you pray as a son. That's not like a 
gender sort of statement. It means you pray as one who has the inheritance of like a son in this era, that the father has given you all that is his. And so you come before him, you pray that the kingdom would come and you do so boldly. And then right after that happens, Jesus demonstrates what it looks like for this kingdom to be advancing. He casts a demon out. Some people have some words about how they think that happened. And then Jesus teaches about the reality of the kingdom. He then goes into a Pharisee's home, eats a meal. And in the course of that meal, he laments, woe over the false religiosity of the Pharisees. That's what's happened leads us up to Luke chapter 12. And the whole thing is sort of swimming in this kingdom dynamic, that the kingdom of God has come, it arrived in the person of Jesus, it is coming at this time through the work of Jesus in our day, through the advancement of the uh, church via the work of the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom will come when Jesus comes back again. And the whole point is you cannot stop it. Satan and the very presence of evil and his demons will not stop the kingdom coming, advancing, and consummating, and you will not be able to stop it if you rebel against it and stand opposed to it. There's no shutting this thing down. Why does all of that matter? Jesus is headed to the cross, and on the cross, the king is going to be victorious. And by his victory, he's going to secure for himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Luke is pointing out and is showing us that Jesus makes clear there are those who are his followers and there are those who are not. There are those who will submit to the kingdom of God and there are those who will rebel against it. And not anywhere in this travel narrative and nowhere else in any of the gospels does Jesus make space for an ambivalent middle. No one's just like an acquaintance of Jesus and then arrives at judgment, and there's special designation for acquaintances. There are friends, sons, disciples, and then there are, Jesus uses the phrase, enemies of the kingdom of God. Wheat and chaff, sheep and goats, trees that bear good fruit, and trees that don't. Jesus knows who are his, He knows their hearts. He knows their commitment. He knows their submission to his rule and reign. He knows their inheritance. And there's a flip side to that. He knows those who are not his, knows those who are not submitted to to his kingdom, knows their hearts, knows their rebellion, and knows lamentably what that means in an eternal sense. Today's passage is going to continue that theme. Jesus leaves that meal with the Pharisees where he's pronounced these woes over their hypocritical religiosity and he rejoins his disciples. And he addresses his disciples in a manner that sounds shockingly similar to what he has just told the Pharisees. In fact, if you just read the passage very quickly and breezed over it, you might think that what Jesus says here is a continuation of what he said to the Pharisees. It's not. Jesus addresses this to his disciples, literally in the middle of it, to his friends. So if you've got a Bible there with you, I'm going to read Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. It says this, Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private All right, what you've whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. 
I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs on your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. I pray that he would speak to us from it this morning. Here's the main point. Jesus is a gentle Savior who is radically honest. A gentle Savior who's radically honest. We're going to work our way through this one time and see what jumps off the page. And what jumps off the page are the warnings. Then we're going to circle back around because remember, Jesus says this to his disciples, literally in the middle of it, calls them friends. So there must be something in there that's comforting for those who are his followers alongside that which is a warning. And so we'll circle back around and see the comforts that are in there, and then I hope to offer one very practical application at the end. Chapter 12, verse 1. Look at the first word. In fact, if you've got a Bible that puts the words of Jesus in red letters, just look at sort of the whole chunk here. Chapter 11 is a lot of red. Then there's like a sentence or two that's not in red, and then chapter 12 is a lot of red. When we read our Bibles fairly quickly, we would see all of that red, read it, pay attention to it. The red signifies to us. That's Jesus speaking. I should probably pay attention. Then we would probably blitz through that little transition statement and pick back up with the red, which is why we would maybe be tempted to think this must be Jesus continuing to talk to the Pharisees. But we're told, meanwhile, your translation might say, in the meantime, the literal transliteration of that is like this awkward phrase that we would never say, which is, at which things. A crowd of many thousand came together so that they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first. Luke is connecting what is said here to what has just happened with the Pharisees. Jesus laments over the Pharisees and their hypocritical religion. Then the Pharisees get angry and they want to trap Jesus. And while they're brooding and festering and looking for a way to sort of ensnare Jesus in something that he says, Jesus returns to his followers. And notice that there are a lot of people out there now. There's always been a crowd, but now Luke attaches an actual sort of general numeric description to it. There are many thousands that have come together. It's one of the few times that Luke actually gives us some sense of how many people are present in this crowd that's following Jesus. He did it recently when Jesus fed the 5,000, which is likely 5,000 men, and then everyone that would have been associated with their families. Now Luke tells us that there are myrias of people. That's where we get the English word myriad. In Greek, myrias was kind of shorthand for saying 10,000 people. So is that 10,000 men? Is that 10,000 total people? Not entirely sure. What we are sure of is that there is a large crowd of people there and we're told there are many thousands who are trampling on one another trying to get near to Jesus. 
we blitz over those kinds of statements and we sort of lose the humanity of what's happening here. Jesus was at dinner where he has this very hard confrontational conversation with the Pharisees and the experts in the law. He walks out of their house and he's met by a clamoring, chaotic mass of people who want to get close to him. 10,000 or well in excess of that if 10,000 is just the number of men. The only picture I can come up with to sort of like help us understand what this would have been like is think back to like the late 90s when on Black Friday, there were like seven Tico Me Elmos available in the store and they would show you the footage of people, hundreds or thousands of people trampling on one another because their child had to have that toy at Christmas. Got the image in mind? That's the scene that Jesus comes out to that he's met by in this huge crowd. And in the middle of that, he does not leverage the opportunity to try to ride a public wave of popularity and opinion. Instead, he literally looks at this crowd or the disciples among this crowd and he says, hey, there's a God who could throw you into hell. Like that's what Jesus does in the moment. He's radically honest here. And in the radical honesty with his followers, he clarifies some truth about who God is. And there are things that even as followers of Jesus, we need to remember. And so I want to walk through those. Pharisees are trying to trap him. Jesus speaks to his disciples. Is everybody in the crowd a disciple? I don't know. Could all 10,000 people hear what Jesus was saying? Or is he addressing those that are close to him? Again, we're not entirely sure. But he has some truths that he wants to convey. Truth number one is in verses two and three. There's nothing uncovered that won't be covered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you whispered in an ear in private will be shouted or proclaimed from the housetops. Warning number one, God knows what is kept hidden. Jesus is saying, you thought it was covered, it will be exposed. You thought you kept it in the dark, the light is going to shine upon it. You thought you whispered it, it's gonna be shouted. The immediate context here, remember, coming out of this interaction with the Pharisees and Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. A little bit of that works through the whole batch. Now he's warning his disciples, a little bit of that will work entirely through you. The Pharisees, they're literally hiding the gospel. Jesus said that the teachers of the law had hidden the key to knowledge. We also know that they're hiding their own broken, dirty, darkened hearts, right? You wash the outside of the cup in the dish, but the inside is dirty. In another place, he says you're like whitewashed tombs. The outside looks great. The inside is full of death. They're hiding it. They're hiding it from the world around them. And Jesus reminds his disciples, you cannot hide from God. I want to try to connect these sort of to 2021. This one is simple. Look, we're all hiding stuff. Look at the person next to you. That could be the person you love more than anybody in the world. They're hiding stuff. That's who we are. Like all of us have brokenness inside that we desperately do not want the world to know. That we even resist the people who love us the most that we're closest to knowing. And being honest and vulnerable about those things is a real hurdle at times. We hide deep struggles with sin. We hide 
feelings and emotions. We hide our reactions to the things that happen in the world around us. And social media has made it so that we can give sort of the air of vulnerability. Like, look at me, I'm out on social media sharing stuff. But typically we're sharing a highlight reel or a very curated edition of what's actually happening in life. We're all hiding stuff. Jesus tells his disciples, God knows what is kept hidden. Warning number two goes verses four through seven. Really, it's verses four and five. He says, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. You'll notice as we work our way through this that there's a uniqueness about this uh, section of Jesus' teaching. And that uniqueness is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all on display. That doesn't happen all that often, particularly in the Gospels. So God knows what is kept hidden. The Father is frighteningly powerful. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to remember. And catch right at the outset, he does this particular warning in the context of calling his disciples friends. Hey, friends, don't forget As hard as the world is around you and the pain that it can cause, there's one who can do much more to you, and that is God, the Father. Yes, there are people who can harm you in this life. We all know that. In fact, we know that there are some people in and around our lives who might even take joy in harming us from time to time. There are people who could harm us physically, people who know how to harm us emotionally, people who know how to harm us mentally. There are people who could harm your reputation or your family or your bank account or even just your sleep schedule because of the amount of stress that they push into your life. All of those are real. Jesus acknowledges that. His point is not to pretend as if those things aren't realities in our broken world. His point isn't even to downplay them. In fact, it's by raising them to the appropriate level that he can then say, Fear the one who can do much more than that. There is a God, Father in heaven, who is frighteningly powerful. Something much more daunting than what anyone on this earth could do to you. God the Father will judge one day. And when he does, your eternal reality will hang in the balance. That, Jesus says, is what ought to truly be feared. And there's warning number three. It comes in verses eight and nine. I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Warning number three is about the Son. Jesus says, me. Acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you. Deny me, I will deny you. What's the warning? Well, the Son expects his people to proclaim him. That's very straightforward. Jesus expects that people who have entered into the glory of his kingdom are going to give proclamation to him and his kingdom. C.S. Lewis has a passage where he talks about the reality that we can't help but talk about the things that we love. We gush over the stuff that we like. Pat Mahomes and Chick-fil-A sweet tea and Joe's Kansas City barbecue, get around me long enough, I'm gonna talk about it because I love those things a lot. But what did we just read at the start of our service and celebrate a few minutes ago? That we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good in communion. And Jesus says, if you've seen the goodness of my kingdom, 
if you've seen the goodness of who God is, I would expect that you would proclaim that before others. Why? It's radically changed your life. I mean, it has shifted everything about who you are and how you view the world, and we can't help but talk about the things that we love. And Jesus says, I'm going to acknowledge all who acknowledge me, because those who acknowledge me are those who have tasted the goodness of my rule and my reign. I'm going to deny all who deny me. You deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before the angels of God and before the Father. Last one comes in verses 10 through 12. Really, the warning is in 10. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is not to be trifled with. I want to clearly define this small phrase, which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That idea, that particular sin, which Jesus says will not ever be forgiven, is something that for followers of Jesus for as long as Christianity has been on this earth has caused, for some, feelings of trepidation and uncertainty because they wonder, what if I've done this? And then I get up to my moment of judgment and God says, sorry, but on this particular date, you blasphemed my Holy Spirit. I want to define this clearly so that I can address that particular thing. But in defining it clearly, I'm going to use some people who are smarter and more succinct than me rather than me fumbling through my own definition. This is what Leon Morris has to say about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says this, We must understand this, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, not of the uttering of any form of words, but of the set of life. It denotes the wicked rejection of the saving power and grace of God. This blasphemy is so serious because it concerns the whole person, not a few words spoken on one occasion. Matthew and Mark put these words in connection with the Beazable controversy, and this helps us understand the meaning, real quick parenthetical, that Beazable controversy is where Jesus casts out a demon and somebody says, he did that by the power of Beazable, and Jesus says, a house divided against itself can't stand. So I didn't do this. I didn't cast out evil by the power of evil. It's got to be something different going on with Leon Morris. He says, Then Jesus' opponents attributed his works of mercy to the devil. They called good evil. People in such a situation cannot repent and seek forgiveness. They lack a sense of sin. They reject God's competence to decide what is right. It is this continuing attitude that is the ultimate sin. God's power to forgive is not abated, but this kind of sinner no longer has the capacity to repent and believe. It's the Holy Spirit who moves in us by God's grace to convict us of sin, to illuminate Jesus as Savior, to move us to repentance and to the reception of his grace. That is the Holy Spirit's first work in a human being's life. And to blaspheme him, the Holy Spirit, is to reject that work and then to stand in sort of smug and content rejection. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to have the kingdom of God illuminated to us And then to assume that that good work by the Holy Spirit is evil. And then to contentedly live in open rebellion toward God's good gift. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So if you're someone who has received God's grace, you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, don't fear. And the reason I say don't fear is because the very fact that you would be worried about having committed this sin means you haven't committed it. The person who has committed this sin 
wouldn't give a rip. They would say, A, who's God? B, who cares? That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That you would have illuminated for you the truth of your own sin, the truth of Jesus as Savior, the necessity of receiving him, and then you would say, I don't actually think that's good. You would attribute that to something evil, you would reject it, and your heart would become so hardened that you wouldn't even care that you've rejected it. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you have a sense of sin, most notably your own sin, and a sense of God as a righteous and just eternal judge who could pardon or punish on the basis of Christ, and you've got an understanding of Jesus as your Savior, you've not committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle says it this way, nothing is impossible with God. The blood of Christ can cleanse away all sin. The very chief of sinners have been pardoned in many instances. These things must never be forgotten. The sin to which our Lord refers in this passage appears to be the sin of deliberately rejecting God's truth in the heart, while the truth is clearly known in the head. It is a combination of light in the understanding and determined wickedness in the will. The man whose sin will not be forgiven is precisely the man who will never seek to have them forgiven. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not to be trifled with. Four warnings in that passage. God knows what is kept hidden. The Father is frighteningly powerful. The Son expects his people to proclaim him, and the Holy Spirit is not to be trifled with. Those are what jump off the page. But remember, Jesus says this to his disciples, coming off the heels of pronouncing woes over the Pharisees. He calls his disciples his friends in the middle of this run of warnings. In fact, there's only two places in all of the Gospels where Jesus directly addresses his disciples and uses the word friends. There's got to be some comfort here. I want to walk back through these and give you some gospel truth that you can hold on to in the middle of these, and it's all good news. The first one is in verses two and three. It's nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light, what you've whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Comfort number one, God knows what is hidden. If you're a note taker, take note of the fact that I took the word kept out of there. He knows what's hidden. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news because Jesus teaches his disciples that they're not to parade their faithfulness and their obedience out before everyone. You don't offer long-winded prayers in public so that people will think highly of you. You're not like the Pharisee or the prominent person who walked into the temple and threw down his offering there and made sure everybody knew it. On the flip side, if you're like that woman who walks in and out of her poverty, puts two small little coins into the offering spot at the back of the temple, good news, God knows what is hidden. Jesus remarks in that instance, she gave out of her poverty. Like, look at the faithfulness of that. Every quiet act of humble submission to God's rule and God's reign, every small act of obedience to the commands of Christ and to his kingdom, God knows. And that is good news. Nothing is slipping by unnoticed. It's wonderful for us to grab hold of that truth and remember it. That's the truth that keeps us from wanting to make a show out of our faithfulness and our Christian obedience. Because our Christian obedience is not for other people to be impressed by us. It's quiet submission to the king and his kingdom. 
A couple of weeks ago, my wife's grandmother passed away and all of her kids and grandkids and even some of the great grandkids that were old enough had an opportunity to write via email to one of my wife's uncles and just talk about Grandma Betty a little bit. And then he took all of those responses and he sort of edited them into this one thing that served as the eulogy at her funeral. So instead of one person standing up, the pastor read the whole family's thoughts about Grandma Betty in her life. And as he was reading, I was standing there and just listening to her children and grandchildren and even her great-grandchildren talk about how just wonderfully loving she was how hospitable she was and how her home was open to anyone. How when you came into contact with her, no matter who you were or what your life was, she loved you and it was like you were family right from the jump. And I stood there and I thought to myself, I really hope Grandma Betty knew that her family thought this about her before she died. Because oftentimes we say things over caskets that we don't ever say to people when they're living. And as I was having that thought, I then remembered it doesn't matter because God knows what is hidden. And Grandma Betty passed away. She went up to her moment of judgment there before the Lord and she was pronounced innocent and all of those quiet, faithful acts were shouted from the rooftops in eternity. I mean, how beautiful is that? It's good news that God knows what's hidden. Amen? Amen. Comfort number two comes from verses four through seven, specifically verses six and seven. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs on your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So verses four and five, the father is frighteningly powerful. Verses six and seven, the father is unthinkably loving. And that is good news. Notice in this little run of four verses, Jesus says, fear, fear, don't fear. Like, fear the one who could throw you into hell. Don't fear the exact same person. (laughs) Like, that's what Jesus has to say about the Father. Why would you not fear? Well, because he knows the hairs on your head. Every single one of them. For some of you, you're like, that's a quick count. For others, you're like, that's a lot of hair. Other places in Scripture tell us that he's marked out all the days of our lives, that he's knit us together in our mother's wombs, that he clothes the flowers of the field and he cares about us infinitely more. Here, Jesus says, you can get a bunch of sparrows for a few pennies, and God knows every single one of them that drops out of the sky. How much more must he love you? The beauty of the Father's love for us is that he has loved us not just from the moment that we placed our faith in Christ, not from the moment that he knit us together in our mother's womb. Brother and sister, he has loved you from eternity past. There was literally no beginning point to the Father's love for you. Think about that. It never started. It just has eternally existed. That's the kind of love that he has for you. So much love that he sent his son here that he might die on the cross, that you might spend eternity with him. That is the Father's unthinkable love, and that is good news. Look at verses eight and nine, number three. And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. This is about the Son. 
So the son expects his people to proclaim him, but the other side of that is that the son is pleased to confess those who are his. And that's good news. We've seen this from Jesus in a host of ways in the Gospel of Luke, but it bears repeating all the time. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. The prerequisite for being saved by Jesus is that you are broken and sinful. That's who Jesus came from, came for. And in your moment of judgment, the Son will be pleased to confess you to the Father. That's amazing. I mean, think of it right now. Not some future point, but right now, in heaven, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, a Father who is both frighteningly powerful and unthinkably loving, and it gives Jesus joy to confess that you are his. It gives him so much joy to do that that Jesus did what? He voluntarily stepped out of heaven, walked his way to the cross, picked the cross up, carried it up a hill, was hoisted up upon it, died an excruciating death, was buried in a tomb and resurrected so that he could plead you before the Father. Like that is unthinkable. In your moment of judgment, you're going to stand there. Father, holy, righteous, frighteningly powerful, unthinkably loving, you, sinful, broken, dirty, even your best works like filthy rags, and Jesus is going to stand there in the middle, and he's not gonna say, I guess. I'm gonna stand there in that moment, and he's gonna say, Tim's here. Oh, I just can't believe it. He's finally here. Grandma Betty died, and she stood there in her moment of judgment, and Jesus said, Betty's here. Let me shout from the rooftops all of the wonderful things that she has done. And the father said, oh, I love Betty. That's good news. He is pleased to confess those who are his. Last one, verses 10 to 12. It's really verses 11 and 12. Verse 10 is the warning about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is not to be trifled with. Verses 11 and 12, whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. The Holy Spirit is not to be trifled with. The Holy Spirit is fitting to be trusted. Jesus said back in chapter 11 in his teaching about prayer that the Holy Spirit is God's good gift to his children. And that means that the Holy Spirit is fitting to be trusted in all things, and that is good news. It means the conviction of the Holy Spirit is to be trusted. The Holy Spirit does not convict in order to shame us. The Holy Spirit convicts in order to sanctify us, and that is a good thing. The assurances of the Holy Spirit are to be trusted. The promptings of the Holy Spirit are to be trusted. The presence of the Holy Spirit is to be trusted. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are to be trusted. That is the good gift that the Father gives his children when his children pray. We can trust that. You put all of those warnings and those comforts together, and it underscores this reality. God is rightly to be feared. And that same God is worthy of being deeply loved and cherished. 
the same hands that we should fear in judgment, we can completely trust to hold us tenderly in his love. That is who God is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the Son, is the visible, tangible, fully human, fully God, flesh and blood depiction of who the Father is. And what we see here is that Jesus is a gentle Savior who is radically honest. He's willing to say, hey, here are the realities, followers of mine. But tucked inside that is all of the gentle beauty of a Savior who loves you deeply. I want to give you one sort of practical application here, but it requires highlighting two threads that run throughout this entire passage. What you said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. What are anyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before God. Anyone who denies me before men, I will deny before God. The one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you must give an account in the face of trial or persecution, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. What's the theme? Speech, right? All of it is about stuff that you would say. Jesus has already said back in Luke 6.45 that the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. So to draw a conclusion here, our speech depicts something about the state or the reality of our heart. Jesus is highlighting that. There's another theme that runs its way through this. What you tried to hide will be uncovered, brought to light, shouted from the housetops. Don't fear the one who can do something to you in this life here and now. Fear the one who can do something to you in an eternal sense. Acknowledgement or denial before the angels of God will result in acknowledgement or denial, uh, or before men will result in acknowledgement or denial before the angels of God. There's something that you could do to the Holy Spirit that will never be forgiven. That theme is end times sort of judgment and its eternal reality. So put all of that together. Your speech reveals something about your heart. And the reality of your heart has an impact on your eternity. Remember, Jesus is headed to the cross to secure an eternal reality for those who are his. And some will be his and some will not. Some are submissive to the kingdom. Some are in open rebellion against it. And the basis of that determination in your moment of judgment will be the reality of your heart. Submitted to him, or not. It will not primarily be your actions or your words, but the truth of the matter is this. Those whose hearts have submitted to the kingdom of God will give evidence of that submission through their heart or through their actions and through their words. What we need out of this passage is not a list of do's and don'ts. What we need is to see a gentle savior who's ruthlessly radically honest. Because radical honesty about eternal things is the most loving thing Jesus can give to us. Here's a diagnostic for this week's sermon. I gave one in relation to last week's. I just want to give a question for you to be able to sort of reflect on and think about. And that question is this. What does my speech reveal about my heart and its submission to the kingdom of God? Your literal speech. What are the words that come tumbling out of your mouth when someone wrongs you? What are the words that come tumbling out of your mouth when someone tries to lovingly address your sin or the way that you've wronged them? What's your response to someone that you disagree with? How about the words you say when the person you're talking about isn't present? 
What about the words you say when things aren't going your way or the day is rough or the service is slow or whatever the case might be that causes you mild annoyance? What are the words that you use with your children when they're exasperating? What are the words that you use with your spouse when they're exasperating by doing the thing that they've known for decades you don't love that they do? Students, children, what are your words like to your siblings when you're just bored and looking for the opportunity to be intentionally inflammatory? Or what are your words when your sibling wants to be intentionally inflammatory? For all of us, how about the words we use about authority figures in and around our lives or in our society? How about your social media posts? How about your words and text messages? What words do you use when you've got opportunities to speak and proclaim the truths of the gospel? Again, not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a diagnostic because the gospel doesn't give us a bunch of rules. The gospel gives us a savior who is our king, who is gentle and radically honest, who lovingly says to his disciples, his friends, your words reveal your heart and your heart is the thing that I'm after. The heart proclaims your relationship to the kingdom and your mouth speaks out of the overflow of that heart. I want to push this sort of one step further as we close. God's kingdom reflects God. The kingdom reflects the king. And the church is supposed to be an outpost of the kingdom. So, I want to take this one step further and say this, that the church is to be a kingdom-minded community of people who are gentle in the midst of radical honesty. Let me start by clarifying what I'm not saying. Don't walk into your small group or your discipleship relationship and say, well, Tim gave me permission to be radically honest. So I'm going scorched earth on, this pe- on these people. Everything that I think about who they are and what they do. First and foremost, if we're going to be a kingdom-minded people who are radically honest, that's about ourselves. We can be radically honest about who we are. Why? God already knows. So you're not hiding anything from the person who ultimately matters most. And two, we're all broken and sinful and in need of a savior. And that means we don't need to hide that from other people. It should not surprise you when the person in your small group or the person in your accountability partnership or the person in your discipleship relationship or your child or your spouse or your best friend or your sibling admits to you that they're broken. That should shock no one. The gospel ought to give us the courage to be radically honest. But then here's the beauty of what the gospel does in the kingdom of God. It also ought to give us confidence that that radical honesty will be received gently. Unfortunately, that hasn't always been the case for a lot of people in churches. They've walked into churches and thought, this gospel makes it so that I can be honest about my brokenness. And church members have been more Pharisee than they have follower of Jesus. And their responses have been harsh and difficult. And that says nothing about the person confessing and everything about the person responding. And so if we are going to be kingdom-minded people, we're people who have the courage to be radically honest about our own brokenness and then just beautifully gentle with the brokenness of others. That doesn't mean that there's not times where we need to speak difficult truths to one another, but it does mean that even those difficult truths are gentle in the image of our Savior, who is gentle and radically honest. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together. You can stand up.